Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The economic bleep storm coming is due to Reagan's deregulated economy. Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon is the, the head of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the United States. He said something that caught a lot of attention. He, he was talking about how the economy, well, last week he said there are storm clouds on the horizon. Yesterday or day before yesterday, he said, uh, no, it's a hurricane. There's a hurricane coming. So what is this all about? What's going on? Well, you know, obviously there's some problems, shall we say. You've got the price of oil spiking around the world as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now there's a small possibility that Saudi Arabia is going to jump in. They said they're going to raise production by 200,000 barrels a day. Keep in mind, they're still down 2.2 million barrels a day, you know, from the production cut that Jared Kushner negotiated with them in the last months of the Trump administration, which is really what's driving the, this problem. So you've got that. The increased demand as a result of COVID kind of going away and America getting back to work. But the big overhang and the big freakout, frankly, and my concern is what's going on with the Fed. Starting in 2008, at that point in time, they had about a trillion dollars on their balance sheet. Uh, this is uh, bonds that they were holding, mostly government bonds. Buying and selling government bonds is one of the ways that the Fed influences our economy and indirectly interest rates as well, and certainly bond prices. But the biggest thing is that when you have a crisis economy, an economy in serious crisis, and this is what we didn't know back in 1929, and it's why the Great Depression lasted almost a decade. But what we do know now is that when you have an economy in a serious crisis, like our economy was in 2008, when the Bush crash happened as a result of having blown up Glass-Steagall back in 1999, this was so predictable. Uh, but anyhow, when the Bush crash happened in 2008, the economy went into freefall, a recession that very easily could have become another Great Depression. And so the Fed borrowed, or didn't borrow, excuse me, invented out of thin air, and only the Fed can do this and just invent money out of thin air. They just add a couple zeros to the numbers on their balance sheet. Actually, they do it by buying bonds. 
In fact, here's exactly how they do it. They'll go out and they'll buy U.S. government treasuries and put them on their balance sheet. Well, okay, so the Fed's holding treasuries. So what? Well, what that means is that when they bought those treasuries, they handed a whole pile of money either to the Treasury Department or most more frequently, they buy them on the open market. They handed that money to other traders. And thus, that money gets injected directly into Wall Street because they're buying these bonds out of Wall Street. Bonds are not as liquid. They're, they're putting that money in. That money's very liquid. And they're also buying corporate bonds, which they had pretty much not done before, but they bought mind-boggling amounts of corporate bonds as well, which is just injecting money directly into our largest corporations. So in uh, 2008, they went from about a trillion dollar balance sheet to a little over a $2 trillion balance sheet. And then that slowly crept up to around $4 trillion in 2020 when we hit COVID and the, and the Trump crash happened. And just in that one year, they jacked another $4 trillion onto their balance sheet. They're now at $8 trillion that the Fed has created out of thin air and poured into our economy, both through buying government bonds, throwing money into Wall Street, and buying corporate bonds, throwing money into our largest American corporations. It's money that they just literally invented out of nothing. And now, starting yesterday, for the first time in 14 years, well, there was a slight uh, drawback in uh, 2009 where they, they started buying back bonds. They did it for a few months. It started to weaken the economy, so they stopped. And they just continued gradually buying bonds all the way up to 2020, and then it exploded again. And they bought a whole pile of them. And again, what this does is it stimulates the economy. So now they're sitting on this eight, $8 trillion worth of bonds that they've bought, and they want to they get them off their balance sheet. And by selling those bonds back out into the marketplace, they draw money out of the marketplace. They draw money out of Wall Street. They draw money out of those corporations, or mostly out of the trade in those bonds. And what do they do with that money? What does the Fed do with that money when they draw it back into the Fed? They retire it. It vanishes. The Fed can create $8 trillion. The Fed can make $8 trillion go away, because the Fed can do that. Only the Fed can do that. This month, they are going to retire $47.5 billion worth of bonds from their balance sheet. And then that's going to go up steadily June, July, August, until starting in September, they're going to be doing $90 billion a month. Did I say trillion? I meant billion. $90 billion a month. Now, that's not a massive amount of money, but it is enough to, to extract cash, extract liquidity from the economy. And when you combine that with the fact that they're also raising interest rates, what you've got is a double hit to the economy. And thus, you know, the headlines in yesterday's Financial Times. This, is just, this, is just, this was just on the front page, right, on yesterday's Financial Times. Ford forecasts car industry consolidations as capital becomes constrained. In other words, there's not enough money to keep these companies in business. Treasuries and U.S. stocks slip as investors gird for monetary policy tightening, which is what I described to you. Um, uh, there's a bunch of them about Canada, Europe, Germany, the U.K., China. Government bonds sell off as Eurozone inflation hits record high. And J.P. Morgan Chief says hurricane is bearing down on the economy. And this is what uh, J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, said. He said, I said there's storm clouds. There are big storm clouds here. He said, now I'm saying it's a hurricane. That hurricane is right out there, down the road, coming our way. 
We just don't know if it's a minor one or Superstorm super storm Sandy, Sandy, and you better brace yourself. So how did we get here? Well, we got here through deregulation. You know, the, the doing away with Glass-Steagall in 1999 is a piece of it, but the biggest piece of it was this massive deregulation that has been going on consistently and steadily ever since the Reagan Revolution. It's the exact same thing that happened in the Roaring Twenties. Harding was elected president in 1920 on the promise that he was going to drop the top tax rate from 91% down to 25%, which he did, and that he was going to deregulate the banks and the, and, the, and, the, and the stock trading companies, which he did, which gave us this insane sugar high that we refer to as the Roaring Twenties. They were roaring for rich people, as F. Scott Fitzgerald you know, <laughs> documented so brilliantly in, his, in several of his books. Um, but for average working people, as uh, John Steinbeck documented so brilliantly, it wasn't so much the Roaring Twenties. It was, it was, you know, it was a time, the 1920s, when labor was being crushed. I mean, people were being shot by police and things like that for protesting and for striking. So that brought us the Great Depression of 1929 that started in 1929. And then FDR came into office in 33 and said, no, we're going to reject this deregulation and these low taxes. He raised the top tax rate back up to 91%. He heavily regulated the banks and Wall Street. In fact, he put Joe Kennedy in charge of, of uh, the, the brand new, the newly created Securities and Exchange Commission. Gloria Swanson used to be on the board of directors of the Salem Children's Village that Louise and I started. She was a vegetarian, and we used to have dinner um, every six months or so in her apartment in New York for several years. And I remember her telling me stories about how, how uh, FDR said that he was putting Joe Kennedy. She knew Joe Kennedy. He, she was not fond of him, shall we say. And she said, uh, FDR said, it takes a crook to catch a crook. <laughs> and, and Joe Kennedy was the crook who was going to catch the crooks. But FDR was committed to stopping this. Ever since the Reagan Revolution, we've been back in this deregulated territory, and this has brought us two big crashes on Reagan's watch. The dot-com bubble bursting, the 2008 Bush crash, the 2020 Trump crash, and now the Fed is trying to create another crash. Keep in mind, it's still being run by a Trump Republican appointee. Yes, he was reappointed by Biden. I think that was a mistake, but say, hey, you know, here we are. Um, and, uh, you know, where is this going to go? I don't know, but I'm concerned. This is the Tom Hartman Program. When Jamie Dimon is saying batten down the hatches, I think it's time to, you know, brace yourself is his actual quote. I think it's time to take that seriously. Professor Richard Wolff is on the line with us, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, most recently, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info, R.D. Wolf with two Fs.com, Democracy at Work, and Prof. Wolf on Twitter. Professor, welcome back to the program. We're seeing a lot of stories about housing bubbles and concern that a recession is coming and that it might burst a housing bubble. I remember back in the day, Will Rogers famously said, my daddy told me, buy land. They ain't making it no more. Land and housing has been a fairly reliable investment, a major vehicle for the wealth of the middle class, certainly throughout my lifetime. I'm wondering what causes housing bubbles? Are we in a housing bubble? What happens when they burst? 
you know, where are we at with regard to all that? I mean, you know, obviously, we saw this disaster in 2008 around housing. Where do you think we're at now? Well, I'm afraid it looks rather similar. As many people have noted, that's not unique to me, not by a long shot. Bubble is usually something one is very clearly seeing after it's over. In other words, it is a 2020 hindsight kind of thing. You notice that prices went up a long time, very far in a short period of time, and then they collapse. And you look back on it and you say, oh, there was a bubble and oh, it burst. This has happened repeatedly, both on a national level and in regions. The most famous part of the United States for having housing bubbles has been Florida, at least for the last century, for all kinds of special reasons. The prices have gone crazy over the last two or three months. That's very clear. The major reason for that is not the pandemic and it's not the Ukraine war. It's the fact that for 20 years now, 20 years, the threat of a collapse of our economy, of a real depression, has been so severe that the Federal Reserve, uh, governed whether by a Democrat or a Republican, didn't really matter, was terrified to do anything other than bring interest rates down to or even below zero, and that made money cheap, and that let the borrowers get going to buy the house and the borrowers to get going to make the house if you're a builder. The end result was a boom. And now the question is, with the inflation everywhere, in the housing industry even more, are we gonna rein that back in? The Federal Reserve says yes, and then the question immediately comes, oh my goodness, will all the people who have borrowed money to buy a home be unable to make the payments and then we're exactly where we were in 2007 and 8 all over again. 2007, 2008, there were liar loans that were legal and uh, you know and, and you had this whole slicing and dicing into um, uh, collateralized debt obligations and everything else. Uh, I thought a lot of that had been taken care of. Are 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 you concerned about those things or is this more just that if there's a general downturn, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs, and when they lose their jobs, they won't be able to make their mortgage payments. Yeah, because, you know, on the one hand, there are some restrictions that people point to who want to comfort themselves, but offsetting that are a whole set of new uh, developments that have to be taken into account. During the pandemic, people, because they had to adjust their lives, borrowed using the equity in their homes to borrow and jack up their indebtedness in order to improve their home, add a room, make accommodations for working at home, and all of that. Those people have raised their level of debt and didn't have to be governed by some of those adjustments that were made after 2007 and 8. And number two, perhaps more important, is that we have eroded the mass of purchasing power and incomes of our people. Let's remember the mass of Americans just went through the pandemic, which cost them all kinds of expenses, then an economic crash, 
about the same time. Now a devastating inflation that is literally making it impossible for them to continue uh, the scale of uh, level of standard of living they had. When you put all that together, you are suggesting the possibility of one of those so-called perfect storms where too many variables come together and make it impossible for the high level of prices. And remember, we have one more thing to keep in mind. The failure of many people along the way to maintain their homes over the last four years has meant that we've had a very significant shift in the way we own houses in the United States. Many fewer homes are owned by the people who live in them. Many, many more, we're talking millions now, of homes are owned by investment companies. They look at this the way they look at any other investment. If things go south, if the number of people who can buy in by renting, they're going to dump those houses. And when they do, you're going to see a, a new kind of depression of the housing bubble that we didn't even see before because we hadn't gotten to the point where houses become an investment game for the super rich rather than, as you put it, a way for the middle class to accumulate at least a little wealth. Yeah, I, I, I wrote an op-ed about this about a year ago, and, and I was shocked doing the research into it, how, you know, in some communities you find as many as half of all the homes that were available were being bought by, you know, these giant hedge funds and, you know, organizations like BlackRock and whatnot, as I recall. And then they're jacking up rents on top of that and making housing even more unaffordable. How much of a factor in the current price of housing do you think is this, I don't, I don't know if you'd call it market manipulation or just the predictable outcome of big investors getting into housing for the first time, I think, in American history, at least the way they're doing it now. In Chattanooga, for example, they were talking about some mind-boggling percentage of houses owned by a big you know, hedge fund. How is that affecting things? I think it's affecting it very significantly. Even if the number was still small, let's say 10%, 8%, 12%, something around there, you might think of that as small. But remember, a crash has to only start with a few people bailing. Once you start doing that and the prices start going down, it builds on itself. It means everybody else who was on the edge about selling their home is now prompted to sell it quickly because the prices are coming down. You want to sell before the price of what you're selling. And that becomes the very cataclysm that we then look back on and say that the bubble burst. I would like to underscore that the same BlackRock and other investment operations buying up housing in the United States are also doing it elsewhere. I did research recently to discover that one of the major owners of homes in Berlin, Germany, is the same company that owns homes in Chattanooga, New York, California, and all the rest. Which means these companies are not just comparing housing in the United States with other housing in the United States. They're global. This is a globalization. If they can't make the kind of money they want in this country, they can do it somewhere else, and they will. They're not going to be bound by some rules of commitment to one society or another. Their business is growing globally, and we're now becoming just another place, and we better show up with the right money, the right profit, or else they're going to leave, and the cataclysm that may come from that 
of the declining prices leading your regular homeowner to get out of it quickly too, that they're not responsible for that, they don't have to pay for that, they don't calculate that, they will make their decisions and we all in this country will be left to live with the consequences. I, I know in the developed world, uh, at least the part of the developed world that uh, vigorously embraced neoliberalism back in the 1980s, most of these laws have been done away with. Um, but it, they're so common around the world where countries uh, say uh, housing is something that we, uh, you know, is, it's so essential to the general welfare of our people that we're going to heavily regulate it. And foreign investors may not own housing unless they actually live in it and they have the equivalent of a green card, whatever the, the, that be, may be in that country. And corporations may not own housing um, except within very, very, const you know, limited constraints, you know, apartment buildings and things like that. As an economist, is that the sort of thing that you think that would would be a good idea here in the United States to limit, you know, housing to, to, to families? Or is that the sort of thing that, you know, I can just hear Stephen Moore's voice in my head going, you know, you're, that's government interference in the free market. Oh, my God. Yes. I, uh, let me make it real clear. I believe in government interference in the free market whenever a rational assessment of the situation indicates that the society as a whole benefits more and that those are the issues for me. I compare the private profitability of the individual corporation with the social conditions. The, the, the craziness of the economics profession, of which I'm a part, to have taught all these years that what is privately profitable by some magic is supposed to automatically be what's best for society. I mean, I understand why they want to sell us that craziness, but we don't have to believe it. No, I agree that things like housing, food, and medical care are things that are fundamental to a decent life and should not be put, held hostage by people who tell us themselves that profit is their bottom line, that profit is why they're in business, that profit is what they achieve or go for. Okay, you go for profit, but not if it involves my diet, my home, and those other things. That's why, for example, in Europe right now, there are movements of operative housing precisely to avoid everything you can. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much, Professor. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman 
or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And then the other part of the supply problem is the stuff coming from China. Right now, China, you know, China has been trying to do this no COVID policy. They basically locked down and, and, and uh, quarantine and all this kind of stuff. And as a result, we've got, you know, entire Chinese ports that are not shipping goods to the United States. And over the last 40 years, Reagan, the Reagan administration and the Bush administration negotiated NAFTA and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, GATT, which became or laid the foundation for the World Trade Organization. Of course, you know, uh, NAFTA and the WTO were brought into existence during the Clinton administration, but they, they were put into place and negotiated during the Reagan and the Bush administrations. And as a consequence of these, this bipartisan consensus, let's send our jobs overseas, you, you, know, you walk into a store and find something that's not made in China. Good luck, Charlie. So when China starts shutting down their ports, which has been happening now for a month, basically, three weeks anyway, in a big way, about two months later, which is how long it takes stuff to make it all the way across the Pacific on a slow boat, about two months later, suddenly you've got shortages. You know, the whole supply chain is anticipating a continuous flow of goods. They're not continuously flowing. So there's going to be even more inflation as a result of you know, demand is not going anywhere, and when supply is reduced, prices go up. It's very simple. So expect substantial inflation coming on, on consumer goods, on toys, on tools, on, you know, on basically pretty much anything you walk into Walmart and buy. We're going to see a lot more inflation in that area. And then the third reason that we have inflation is because we put a lot of money in people's pockets over the last two years in order to get the average person through the economy. And of course, there was a half a trillion dollars of money apparently stolen in the last year of the Trump administration because he had no controls over the money that was going out the door to all his and Wilbur Ross's buddies through that PPP program. So there was just a lot of money sloshing around in the economy. That third part is arguably what Jerome Powell is trying to get under control. He's trying to dial back the money sloshing around in the economy, dialing back the money supply, taking, you know, the, the Fed has got $7 trillion on their balance sheet right now. They're trying to, to unwind their balance sheet and they're trying to raise interest rates to slow down the economy. Well, yeah, it's going to slightly reduce the amount of money in the economy. Well, it's going to, actually, it's going to substantially reduce it and throw us into a recession. I guarantee you that. We are looking at a recession just in time for the election. But it also isn't going to do, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to solve the problem. Inflation typically takes six to 10 years to, you know, the mean of around eight years of inflation to flush itself out of an economy once the things that are causing the inflation are gone. That surplus money, the, the free money that was being passed out, the long-term unemployment benefits, the child tax credit, the, the, the PPP program, all of that extra money came to a screeching halt a few months ago. 
It had nothing to do with the Fed. We're not, you know, the federal government is, because Republicans refuse to pass Build Back Better, the stimulus is gone. If Powell had just sat back and waited a year, he would, ha- he would have had his recession anyway, which is, of course, what the Republicans want. They want the country to be in a depression by 2024 so that they can, they can run against Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat is saying, hey, they brought you a Great Depression. Joan in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Joan, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, I was thinking back to about 1968 when I was visiting in a different city with a gentleman who was in the bus- in a business. And he said at that time, no foreign entities could own property or businesses in this country. It was not something that was allowed. Can you verify when that was or if it was? I can't. And when did that change? I, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I... Uh, I would like to know, <laughs> Joan. Well, I know it's, I know in 1968 when I when we moved to this one city and this gentleman worked for a company said that that was not allowed. They weren't allowed. That was an American city. American. They were not sold to. They were the foreign countries were not allowed to own properties no. and and businesses in this country, and that should have never changed because that's where everything's kind of gone down the hill. I agree. We, we don't even. We have more properties owned by foreign entities than the people of this country. There's so much foreign investment money in this country instead of letting the people in this country have charge of themselves. And I would like to know, if, if you don't know now, if, if you would look it up and see if you can find out what laws that changed, because I know in 1968 that's how I, it was. I already tried to find this. Uh, it was... I think maybe a, probably six months or may, maybe as much as a year ago uh, for Hartman Report. I wrote a, a whole op-ed about housing. And in fact, uh, uh, the thing that got me started on this was a, a new book that had just come out from a fellow who was looking at the U.S. housing market. Actually, I should probably go home and look in that book. It might be in there. But I went online. I was searching for this, Joan. I, I, I couldn't even find a list of countries that limit home ownership. Now, you know, maybe that's just poor scholar, poor research on my part, but if anybody watching knows the answer to this question, I'd love to hear it. You know, give us a shout. Yeah, Yeah, and it wasn't just housing. It was any type of business. It's commercial land, too. Yeah. Yeah, every yeah. every single thing that that we know now are being owned by foreign countries and run by foreign countries entities are there and who what president allowed that and what Congress allowed this to happen to our country. Yeah. It is not an okay thing. I'm I'm with you. My my guess is you know the 1981 the election well the the uh, swearing in of Ronald Reagan on January 20th 1981 was the beginning of the modern neoliberal era in full bloom. I mean, there was a couple of years there where Jimmy Carter was adopting some of the neoliberal policies, but um, mostly it was post-1981. So if there was such a law on the books and at the federal level, then it probably would, would have been repealed after that. If these were state laws... I don't know if they'd go up against anything federal or not, and, and, and I don't know if they, if they are state laws, if they've all been repealed. I'm, I'm just speculating on the whole thing, Joan. I wish I knew, because, you know, housing, this is how most middle-class families basically accumulate the wealth on which they retire or that they pass along to their children. 
I mean, it's their house. That's, that's their biggest asset. I, it's, it's certainly my biggest asset. I, I, I think it is for most middle class people. So, Joan, I got to run, but thank you for the call and the call to research. I've got some work to do. Patsy in Arroyo Grande, California. Hey, Patsy, what's up? Well, hi. I live in an area that's a combination of like uh, tourism for beaches and vineyards and ranches and strawberry fields and the whole bit. And we just have always had a real problem with housing here because there's so many, uh, you know, so much beach, you know, front housing and you know, like vacation homes and the mm-hmm. whole thing. But it's really gotten very bad now. And the cheapest rental you can get is like a, a room for $900. So the people who live here are increasingly becoming homeless. And these are like working people. I mean, I have a friend who uh, is a retired school teacher who's practically living in her car now and, and has half her stuff in my house because she just, you know, you know, she's just like in between, you know, couch surfing is what's happening to her. So, but the thing is what we started doing was we found out our vote really isn't counting that much, although we vote. So we started going to city council meetings and boards of supervisor meetings, and they give you two or three minutes to talk. And uh, the problem is, like I'm sure in most uh, areas like mine, which you know are not big city areas, you have a bunch of potted plant, you know, politicians and bureaucrats or anything. And when you know things go bad, it, it, you know they don't know what to do about it. So we've been going there and just basically getting up there and doing our two or three minutes, you know, saying, do something. Mm. And they visibly squirm. And, I, you know, it's really kind of a last resort, but it's kind of fun watching these people squirm. Mm. So I'm suggesting everybody just get out there, get to your city council meeting, your board of supervisor meeting, if you can go to the capital, the assembly meeting, and just start speaking up. Cause and your school board meeting. Yes, school board. Oh, we had a big problem with that, too. Uh, where they were harassing the school boarders, but yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, these were outside people coming in doing this. Yep, yes. local, local political action is absolutely where it's at, Patsy, and and you are speaking absolute truth here. Okay, it's, well, it's, anyway, that's what I wanted to say is okay. people just get out there. I mean, there's all kinds of activism, and this is kind of, since I'm a retiree, and this is something retirees can do, that we can do. Yep, show up, show up, amen. And welcome back. On the line with us is my old buddy and and the editor of many of my books, Troy Miller, a West Virginia organizer with Social Security Works. He's also a writer himself. He's got a Substack publication. It's called Blue Ridge Breakdown, blueridgebreakdown.substack.com. In this context, at socialsecurityworks.org. And Troy's Twitter handle is Troy N. Miller, spelled just the way it sounds, and like Nancy, although I'm sure it's not Nancy. Hey, Troy, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Joe Manchin is your senator, and uh, I I, I caught this article that quoted you, in fact, uh, over on Common Dreams. The headline was Progressive Slam Phony Manchin for Pushing Lower Drug Prices After Killing Build Back Better. Tell us about this, Troy. I do not think Joe Manchin is particularly phony on this issue. And the reason why he got slammed is because the issues that he brought up specifically at an ARP meeting on Tuesday, and I wasn't expecting to hear anything from him on Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend, but he says we need to let Medicare negotiate pharmaceutical drug prices, prescription drug prices, they need to cap insulin payments at $35 a month, and allow for Canadian drug imports with FDA approval. All three of these things were in Build Back Better. 
So I don't think people were wrong to slam him to say that he should have supported this when it was on the table in December. We were rallying Social Security Works and various organizations around the state back then in December when I was on this program about this issue. I wrote an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette Mail that month that was titled, Big Pharma's Greed is Fueling Inflation, because Joe Manchin had explicitly said that he was concerned about inflation and the effects on any of the legislation build back better on inflation. So the reality is, even in years of low inflation, like 2019 when inflation was around 2%, pharmaceutical drug prices ballooned by 10.5% on average. And when you look at an index of just 3,400 drugs, it ballooned by 17% in the first six months of 2019 alone. So this is a very real thing that we can use to ta that we can tackle inflation through that is going on even when low in even when we're under low inflation. So it seems to me that he's actually almost consistent on this. He has said that we needed to uh, have Medicare negotiate drug prices like the VA does for at least a year now. He has been on record multiple times saying that. He said it earlier this year, 3 months after he killed Build Back Better. Now he said it again and he says that let me get the quote exactly right. The drug pricing is something we all agree on, but if we do nothing more this year, that's the one thing that must be done. Now, if this is something that must be done, and we've had these provisions in a piece of legislation, my challenge to Senator Manchin and his staff is to take the next couple hours today, maybe, or the weekend, and copy and paste those provisions out of Build Back Better, put it on his senatorial paperhead, and walk it down to Senator Sanders' office on Monday and get him to co-sponsor the damn bill. Call it the Manchin-Sanders bill to take on pharma greed and save American lives. This is something that we can do that would solidify democratic unity. It would show that we are unified on at least this issue of tackling prescription drug prices. And it would show that we are unified with the 85% of Americans who think we need, who think drug prices are too high, and the 87% of Americans, according to AARP polling, who think that Medicare should be able to negotiate these, farm, these prescription drug prices. So that is my challenge and my demand. Whether he is phony on every other issue or anything like that is not my concern. And I want to add that this is only taking on one portion of the problem with our healthcare system in America. This does nothing to take on the insurers who are acting in a predatory manner, who are siphoning money out of Medicare through Advantage plans that need to be um, audited much closer than they're being audited right now. This is not taking on those things, and I guess that's okay. There is Medicare for all bill. There is a Medicare for all bill in Congress right now that'll move forward. I would be highly doubtful that Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, would come on board with that bill. But where we can get this on. Is with, and be with 85% of Americans, 87% of Americans, 9 out of 10, depending upon the polls you're looking at, to take on the runaway cost of prescription drugs and so, tackle it. So, Troy, do you think he, we have just a minute left, do you think that yep. Joe Manchin is just blowing smoke here, uh, you know, telling people what he knows they want to hear, or uh, do you think he's going to take your advice and try to work something out with Bernie or anybody else, for that matter, to make it happen? I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic really? that he can do this, because I think it... I, do, I don't want to call him a vain man, but I think the opportunity to have his name on a signature piece of legislation as a lead sponsor or a co-sponsor that would do so much good for this state in particular. We are one of the uh, five, we're the fifth most expensive state for prescri average prescription drug prices for or cost spending, right. two thousand yeah. dollars per. And his person. daughter didn't help that any, so that he's, right he's as we that. know, and uh, exactly, and uh, you know, this is, uh, I think this is something that he really wants to get done. 
I want to believe that he really wants to get it done. And I think we can. And we can show real Democratic unity, get a Manchin-Sanders bill across the thing, and run on that in November with the whole damn party. There you Thank go. you so much for the time, Tom. Sure. Troy Miller, Blue Ridge BlueRidgeBreakdown.substack.com, SocialSecurityWorks.org, Twitter, Troy N. Miller. Troy, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tom. Yep. Have a great one. You too. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Dave in Buffalo, New York. My question is around the chair fed Powell and him being a GOP. Uh, I read a couple articles uh, about if Wall Street Journal uh, about the... Uh, 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 about the economy, and they had kind of an optimistic view, although it was kind of critical, but they, they had hope uh, more than perhaps what we're doing on. Uh, but then uh, it also offered that uh, the ratio of the economists uh, was 10 to 1 Democratic. And, and I'm concerned question is about the GOP Fed. How does he influence, uh, uh, which has happened before in the past, where uh, a Republican uh, Fed has raised interest rates on a Democratic president, when in other conditions, in similar situations, it didn't happen. But then with the ratio of 10 to 1, uh, how does the Fed GOP Powell uh, raise interest rates uh, 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 when does is he overseen or does he yeah. take input from the other 800 the, the way it works dave uh, is well no there's not 800 economists you, you, maybe somebody surveyed economists and found that there were a lot of democrats among the economists which makes a lot of sense because if you look at the impact of republican policies on the economy it makes you a democrat but the uh, what the, the the group that makes these decisions is called the fed open market uh, the federal reserve open market committee fomc and they, uh, my my belief, my recollection is that it is made up of uh, people from all of the it, what I believe there's ten Federal Reserve banks. It's been a while since I did a deep dive in this stuff. In fact, it's been a years, and they make the recommendations whether Powell has the ability to cancel them or veto them or go around them. I I frankly don't know. It would be probably a good segment for us to do on exactly how the Fed works. And, uh, you know, let me put that in my, in, my, uh, in my brain for the future. But it's not just Jerome Powell. 
Jerome Powell, though, is uh, a Republican, and uh, which is why he was appointed by Donald Trump to be the head of the Fed, and also was a banker before. And this is, and, and to the point that you're bringing up, Dave, some inter- interesting stuff today. This is uh, from Dealbook, from the uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's uh, newsletter with the New York Times. He says, corporate profits continue to ramp up. Uh, profits for the S&P are likely to have risen by an average of nearly 7% in the first quarter of 2022 from the year, from the first quarter of 2021, which was also an increase in corporate profits. He said uh, this week PepsiCo reported a big jump in revenue for the first quarter, in large part because it raised its prices by as much as 12% for Lay's, Doritos, and other snacks in the past years. Uh, Executives hinted that they may continue to charge more for products. And also, uh, profits at Exxon doubled to $5.5 billion for the first quarter. Chevron, uh, $6.3 billion. So you've got inflation because these giant corporations are raising their prices. I mean, that's, that's basically what it all comes down to. Aaron in Carmichael, California. Hey, Aaron, what's on your mind today? So I was looking at different tax proposals because I'm always kind of curious about that. And I was looking at the fairtax.org where they talk about the consumption tax at the national level and just eliminating federal income tax of any kind. And I was thinking about how it could work. And the, the best it's way a tax I could see rich it people love, Aaron. I mean, you know, billionaires spend like one ten thousandth of one percent of their income on things that are subject to sales tax, whereas people making eight bucks an hour spend probably sixty percent of their income on things subject to sales tax. With an income tax, those people making 10 bucks an hour are paying nothing or very little, whereas billionaires pay high taxes. So it's not a fair tax unless you're a billionaire, but I get it. You can finish what you were saying. But I was thinking about how we could make it work as one, states should just stop charging general sales tax to begin with. So I kind of think I'm with you about sales tax. The other reason I kind of like it is because, one, it would cost a whole lot less to administer than having to file tax returns for the IRS. In most European countries, in fact, in most countries in the world, the Internal Revenue Service sends you your taxes. They know how much you make. Your employer is required to send a 1099 to the IRS. They send one to you and to the IRS. And in fact, the IRS, Elizabeth Warren proposed this last year. The IRS has all the information they need to send you your completely filled out tax return. And all you have to do is look at it. And if there was something on there that they missed or they made a mistake, fix it. And if not, sign it and mail it back. That's how it works in most countries. The only reason it doesn't work that way in this country is because members of Congress keep getting bought off by companies like TurboTax who heavily lobby Congress to keep it confusing and difficult and not allow the IRS to do that. But in every other country in the world, that's how it works. So it's not, you know, if your goal is to get rid of confusing tax forms, having a national sales tax is not the way to do it. If you want to talk about a value-added tax, I'm with you on that and I would go there. But that's not what they call this fair tax thing is just absolute screaming BS coming from, you know, the right-wing billionaire oligarchs. Well, the other thing, too, though, is that the people who visit and tour our country would actually be paying tax, so we'd have a bigger tax base. Yeah, well, they, they already are with sales taxes and, and hotel taxes and meal taxes. I mean, there are a lot of taxes that capture tourists already, Aaron. Again, that's one of those phony baloney arguments that the billionaires who want to see their, their income tax go away are pitching. I'd be very careful of it, Aaron. Kim in New York City. Hey, Kim, what's on your mind today? 
in 2018, the Trump tax changes really hurt uh, working people and people in the blue states through two things, limiting the SALT deduction, which your viewers probably know, state and local tax, as well as property tax deductions, limiting that to $10,000 a year, which, as we know, the blue states have very high rates of taxation. So our SALT taxes go above 10000 so a lot of us are not getting the benefit of the full deduction. We're paying more tax. Right. And they, and, and they are claiming, if I can just jump in here, Kate, they are claiming that this is to, uh, uh, you know, that the Democrats who want to go back to the way it was for, you know, hundreds of years in America are uh, trying to protect rich people. Well, the average home price in Portland is like $540,000, I think, or maybe four hundred and seventy. At that price, you can be paying twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 a year in property taxes. And under Trump, you're limited to a $10,000 maximum deduction for your property taxes. So you can no longer deduct your state property taxes or county property taxes from your federal government. And it's hitting the, uh, let's say, the upper middle class, but I don't even think it's the upper middle class. I mean, you know, the, the, you drive through the neighborhoods in Portland. The, you know, these, are, these are people starting out their families in many cases. So back right. to you. Right. Yeah, it's it's awful. And the, the second thing is that there was removed is the deduction for unreimbursed employee expenses. And a lot of people spend money on, on uniforms, union fees, travel, whatever they teachers need their, buy books uh, and chalk. Right. And teachers have a, a educator expense limit of like 250 a year, but that doesn't even begin to to make a dent. So we don't have these deductions anymore. And this obviously hurts the W-2 employees. It it hurts people who do not own their own business. So, you know, I'm surprised that the Biden administration has not taken steps to roll back some of these awful tax policies. And I'm wondering if it's because uh, they were perhaps wrapped into the Build Back Better plan or some other legislation that didn't pass or if it's just a, a low priority. And, you know, whether you, whether you think that uh, we're going to get any relief in that area, maybe we can ask uh, uh, Congressman uh, Rokana or, uh, you know, someone about that. Yeah, yeah. The next time one of them's on the show, give him a shout. I, I don't know if it was in Build Back Better or not. I do know that there were some Democrats who were opposed to lifting the salt cap, bringing back the salt deduction, the state local tax deduction. It was always there. The Trump administration did away with it because uh, property values are typically higher in blue states than they are in red states. And so it principally would hurt the blue states. This was a, just a pure political evil thing that they were doing, uh, you know, thinking that it would turn blue state people or create a blue state crisis where people would start screaming about their property taxes. And frankly, it is. It is producing that result. <laughs> there are some Democrats who are freaked out about it, too. So spot on, Kate. Yes, thank you. And you did a great public service there notifying everybody about it. Thank you. Mark in San Diego. Hey, Mark, what's up? Freedom. Freedom is our freedom to your tagline. Tag, we are it. I wanted to make the note that freedom also is profoundly impacted not only by the externals, the policies, politicians, etc., but by our own psychology, our managing our inputs. That is the media that we expose ourselves to. You came to the San Diego area 12 years ago and you turned me on to the media alternatives now and the voices that we need to actively search for to hear and get inputs different than what we hear nearly 24-7 from these corporate-sponsored outlets. Yeah, yeah. 
we need to take responsibility, if you will, to manage our own algorithms, our own decision-making for the inputs that we allow. We're limited to the, our brain's capacity to try and sift through the propaganda when, it, when it's repeated enough. Our brains can't handle it, Tom. We've got to get ourselves available to other sources, other viewpoints beyond the pipelines that, that come into our homes um, um, and, our, and is the discussion at our dinner tables. Yeah. Take responsibility. That's part of TAG. We're it. We have to, that whole point about filtering the media that we allow into our brains, Tom. Yeah. There's a couple of issues here, Mark. One is that if you feel agency, if you feel the ability to move in a way that affects the outcome of your life, that changes the direction of your life, if you feel like you have a certain level of control, you feel far more free than a person who doesn't feel, who feels that agency has been stolen from them, that they have lost the ability to, to alter the course of their life. And America, as Reaganism has bitten, in 1980, we were one of the top five most socially mobile countries in the world. If you were born into poverty, you could still become rich. If you were rich, you could still become poor. If you were born in the middle class, you could go up or down. We, we were literally one of the most socially mobile countries in the world. Today, we are the least. Now, I'm talking about the developed world, you know, the 38 nations, OECD nations. Today, we are the least socially mobile. And I would lay a large part of that. I've been very free my whole entire life because I've been running my own businesses since I was 16 years old. Now, I did have mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a, we had a, an electronic repair shop uh, when I was 19 that I actually had to declare bankruptcy on. I, it was a horrible experience, but I learned so much from that. And I learned how to be an entrepreneur. And I've built five businesses over the years, you know, started seven or eight. A couple of them, you know, just didn't make it. But I've learned so much from that and it's done well for me. But now, you know, I'm looking at, at, you know, at my kids, I'm looking at people in the generation coming up, and because Reagan ended the enforcement of the antitrust laws, it's almost impossible to start a small business these days. And, you know, and if you do, the goal is to build it fast enough and big enough that one of the giants will buy you out before they crush you like a bug. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that has harmed freedom. Our political fear has harmed freedom. I think that there's a whole bunch of consolidation of the media has diminished our free access to news and information. At a whole bunch of levels, I'm seeing policies that, in my opinion, impact our freedom. And of course, my definition of freedom goes back to Franklin Roosevelt, that you're not free if you're hungry. If you are homeless, you are not free. If you can't heat your home, you're not free. If you are, if you are living on the edge, you are not free. You are being driven by whatever that edge is, living in poverty. And so if we want to expand freedom in the United States, we need to diminish poverty and expand the opportunity to get an education, to get a job, to buy a home, to raise a family, to live in the, to start a new business, to start a small business, to live in the way that you want to live. And that, that's my definition, Mark. And we need to exercise our freedom to access the, the information, to get as close to facts and what's really going on out there as we can. I'm thinking about countries like Russia, where so many citizens do not have and that China. information. Exactly. Yeah. So we need to exercise that freedom, exercise our own capacity to educate and inform ourselves. Listen to your channel and the other great alternative news sources out there. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for the plug. I appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Robert in Roswell, New Mexico. Hey, Robert. The Supreme Court has decreed that corporations are persons. Are these persons citizens? That's an interesting question. To the best of my knowledge, there's no citizenship test for corporations. I mean, American corporate, some of your larger American corporations, in fact, are not even majority American owned any longer. So, no. By the way, let me just flag something for you, Robert. If you go to HartmanReport.com, and across the top, it, it has, you know, my daily rants and the daily audio and all this stuff. And one of them is the Sunday excerpt. I published there the chapter from the book that I wrote back in 2002, Unequal Protection, about how in 1886, in the Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad case, how the clerk of the court, John Chandler Bancroft Davis, put in the head note this idea that corporations are persons, how corporate personhood happened. And you can read the whole thing. There's no ads, there's no admission, you don't have to pay anything, you don't even have to join anything or subscribe, you can just read it. So I think, I think you'll find it fascinating. It's, it's uh, an in-depth, uh, pretty exhaustive analysis of what happened on that, on that day in 1886. Thank you very much. Stephanie in Kankakee, Illinois. Hey, Stephanie, what's up? I want to talk about the supply chain, and especially the food chain. Mm-hmm. I don't think Americans understand that the American farmer does not feed America, the big, large corporate farmers. In Illinois, they grow 0.2% worth of food. Everything else is soy, corn, and um, wheat. That's it's animal on the, food. On the market. Right. Now, the people who are feeding America are actually the small farmers. They call hobby farms, you know, because you've got less than 1,000 acres. So... We wouldn't have this food supply if we would do like we did back when I was growing up in the 50s and the 60s. We bought our groceries and our fruits from local farmers. Amen. I remember Pembroke, Illinois, was given 70% of the produce came from Pembroke, Illinois, which is just 60 miles south of Chicago. And they were basically black farmers. They were, they were, were black farmers. Not, they sold to Chicago all the way to Ohio and Michigan. It worked. This is one of the things that, one of the lost histories of the Reagan administration, Stephanie. If you remember back, if you're old enough to remember the 80s, and you said, you know, you, you remember the 50s and 60s, so I'm guessing you are, like I am. Then you also remember Willie Nelson doing farm aid, all these crises that farmers were having in the 1980s. That came, that all came out of Reagan in 1983, suspending all enforcement of the antitrust laws. And so what happened was these giant agricultural companies started manipulating commodity prices to put small farmers in a real squeeze, and then went around and offered to buy up their farms and let them continue living there, but now you're a tenant farmer, basically, a sharecropper. And, and that's what happened to the small farms all across the United States. Uh, my wife's grandmother had a 100-acre farm in Michigan. And same thing. I mean, you know, this, this was just a, a nationwide trend in the 80s. How do you think we come back from that? We're going to have to tighten our belts a little. I guess. And we're going to have to just start paying a little more for our groceries to get them from local farmers. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, because right now they're trying to put a pipeline through Pembroke, a gas line, knowing that the state is going 80%. Because it's black. Yeah. So uh, we're going to just have to fight our way back. There you go. There you go. And we need to break up some of these giant ag companies, too. Stephanie, thank you. 
the spike in violence, this is fascinating. First of all, there has been an increase in violence over the last two years in the United States. This is absolutely undeniable. Um, mostly in homicides. That said, according to the FBI, the murder rate right now is still 30% lower than it was in, in the era from 1970 to 1990. That period of time, that, that 20 year period of time of the, of the 70s and the 80s had the highest rates of violent crime recorded in the history of America. And nobody's sure exactly why it slowed down in the 90s, why crime slowed down in the 90s, but it has dropped, it had dropped by, you know, really substantial margins. And now it's, even with the crime back up again a bit, it's still down 30% from that era. But what's causing this spike in crime right now? Josh uh, Myers wrote a piece that's uh, over at Yahoo News entitled, Here's What Experts Say is Causing the United States' Recent Spike in Violence. I think it's fascinating. According to the FBI, the homicide rate rose 30% in 2020, and then uh, an additional 5% in 2021. This is over 2019 numbers. Now, I think that, and, and the experts are saying, that an awful lot of that can be attributed to lockdown that the, the reason that the murder rate went up during 2020 is people were going nuts. We couldn't leave our houses. We lost our jobs. We couldn't go to work. We were afraid to, to encounter other human beings. We were walking into the supermarket dressed like, you know, uh, in a spacesuit. Uh, all this kind of stuff. So, number one, the experts are pointing out, yes, that, that was true. And, and presumably that will wash out just like inflation will wash out as we return to normal over the next year or so. The second cause, and I, thought, I found this particularly fascinating, they're quoting a guy who's a professor at John Jay College, uh, Dennis Kenny, Professor Dennis Kenny, And he says that uh, this is because of growing political polarization and distrust in U.S. institutions. Keep in mind, Donald Trump still refuses to condemn Vladimir Putin. Donald Trump still holds the position that our intelligence agencies and our FBI are the villains in the whole you know, Trump-Russia situation, and generally. Trump is still trashing our intelligence agencies. After having stolen 18 cases of intelligence from the White House and taken it down to Mar-a-Lago and done God only knows what with it. I lay this at Donald Trump's feet and the Republican Party's feet. They are telling us you can't, you can't trust government, you can't trust Medicare, you can't trust Social Security, you can't trust anything. You can't trust anybody in government. And this is, of course, because they want to deregulate, you know, they, they want to do away with government regulations that make it less profitable for polluting industries. That's, that's really where all this began. The right-wing billionaires funding an awful lot of this stuff are not so much ideologues as they're, you know, they're looking at their bottom line. So... Those are the two issues that were identified. Oh, and the third issue, 38 million guns were sold in 2021 alone, another 10 million in 2019. That there are more guns, and so of course there are going to be more murders. I would add a fourth variable, and this is the one that Wilkerson and Pickett identified, and that's inequality. Inequality has spiked. Inequality goes up, murders go up. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. There's a lot of speculation about exactly why, but it is absolutely true in every country around the world, in every state in the union. 
Inequality goes up, crime goes up. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.